Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading 2 Corinthians together for the last few weeks. It is a letter that Paul wrote uh, because something bad had happened uh, between him and the church that he founded in Corinth. So he wrote this letter to foster reconciliation, to foster healing between them, and to address some deeply personal criticisms uh, that were being made about his leadership. So we're going to pick up this morning where we left off. I'll read from chapter 2 for us. I'll read verses 12 through 17. We'll only talk um, probably about through the middle half of 16, but I'll read all of it for us. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we hear that Old Testament lesson that we just heard read, that you would make your people um, be like a burning torch to make your salvation known to the whole world. And we would like to be people like that. People who show your love and grace and mercy to the world. So we ask that you'd use this uh, word that we've read and heard together to show us that grace again and to change us into people like that, to transform us by the grace of Jesus into people who make your beauty and your grace and mercy to us in Jesus known. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, back, uh, back in July of 2015, the state of South Carolina, the, the government of South Carolina, removed the Confederate flag um, from on display at the Capitol there in Columbia, South Carolina. And about five days after they removed uh, that flag, uh, the KKK organized a rally to protest the removal of that flag. And that was the same day, five days later, that a sousaphone player named uh, Matt Buck hastily organized a counter-protest uh, against the KKK. And here is what Matt Buck did. He threw his sousaphone in the car and he drove around and tried to find uh, these guys that were marching. And when he found them on the route, he hopped out of his car and he grabbed his sousaphone and he started playing a slow, lumbering, marching bass line. It's an old bass line that was played in old Looney Tunes cartoons. <laughs> so at the risk uh, of making my, myself look and sound like a fool, I'm going to hum it for you. It was bum, ba, bum. He played this underneath the marchers as they were marching. And uh, the effect was immediate. And it was a direct hit. And it was also very funny. Any 
any of the dignity, any of the triumph that these marchers were trying to project was immediately drained. And their protest was turned inside out for two uh, incredible minutes. You can look it up later uh, on YouTube if you want. And this is really, really close to what Paul does in that part of the letter that we just read together. He takes a very culturally familiar image of power, a culturally familiar image of glory. It also happens to be a parade, the Roman triumph procession. And he turns it inside out. And he turns it inside out in a way that points all of us to one of the central paradoxes, not only of Paul's uh, writing and Paul's thinking, but to one of the central paradoxes of our faith as followers of Jesus. And that is that it is in weakness and suffering where power and glory and grace are found. It is in weakness and it is in suffering where power, glory, and grace are found. It is where they are easily seen. And I gotta say, of course, this runs counter to so much of how we're taught to view the world around us. This runs counter to so much of how we are taught to view ourselves, how we're taught to live and be in this world. But I wanna say that understanding this, understanding that that's where grace and glory are seen is in our suffering. Understanding that in a way that shakes down into the way that we think and into the way that we live leads to health, leads to life, it leads to maturity, and it leads to the good of the world. So where we started reading uh, in verse 12, Paul returns again to explain his travels to his friends at the church in Corinth. You might remember if you have been here the last couple of weeks that one of the things that had confused them and probably hurt them was that Paul had promised to come and visit them, but then he had not come. Uh, Instead, what he did is sent them a letter, a difficult letter, a hard letter, and he explained that was to spare all of them the pain that would have come if he had made another visit again in person so soon. It had gone so badly. So instead of Corinth, uh, Paul tells his friends that he went to a place called Troas, And he went there to, as he puts it, preach uh, the good news of Jesus. He went there to preach the gospel of Jesus. Now, we uh, hear words like that and we read words like that um, probably so often that I think that they have a tendency to wash over us. Like, of course, Paul preached the gospel. That's his whole thing. So what I want to do is just take a couple of minutes to think about how strange and uh, how beautiful that really is, that a really highly educated, brilliant guy named Paul from a place called Tarsus would run around the whole world and tell people about a carpenter from Nazareth who turned to an itinerant preacher. Why would this happen? Why would this happen anywhere? And so this is a good place to remember that the first time that we ever hear Paul's name, the first time we ever hear his name uttered is at an execution. You can read about it in Acts 7. A young Christian named Stephen was being killed. And while Paul didn't throw any rocks that day, he held the coats um, while all of the other people threw rocks at Stephen. And with his last breath, with his dying breath, Stephen prayed a prayer. And this is the prayer that he prayed. He said, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. 
right, with, with his final breath, right before he dies, Stephen asked God to show mercy on his executioners, just like Jesus had asked God to do the same right before he was killed. It is a beautiful story. It is compelling. And that's why the next part of the story can make your blood run cold. Because the book of Acts says that Paul approved of his execution. He was glad that Stephen was dead. He was glad. Something is ignited in Paul that day, something horrific, something violent, something active, something that is cruelly resourceful. On that day, all of the formative streams of Paul's life come together, and he's certain from that moment on exactly what he should be doing with his life. For the rest of his life, the book of Acts says Paul started ravaging the church and he started dragging women and men off to prison. This is Paul's plan. Paul's plan is to reproduce what happened to Stephen that day again and again and again and again till every one of the followers of Jesus is wiped off the face of the earth. He's on the leading edge of this incredibly great persecution in the church that made the first Christians flee from Jerusalem for their lives. Paul is not a good guy. He is a very bad, very violent guy, breathing threats and murder against the people who followed Jesus. And church, that is really, really important to remember. Because one day he's out trying to wrangle Christians and he meets his maker. He meets his maker, you can read about it in Acts 9, the resurrected Jesus himself comes to Paul and Jesus asks Paul a question that will begin to unravel his tightly coiled, tightly ordered life. Jesus asks him a question that will make his life fall apart. He says, why are you persecuting me? There's so much in Paul's life that flows out of that question. There's so much in his life that flows out of that very moment. And hopefully we'll talk about some of them as we keep reading this letter. But perhaps the most important thing that happened to Paul that day, honestly, (laughs) is that at the end of it, he's still alive. That he is spared Not only that he is spared, but that he is given a new life and a new vocation and a new way to be in this world. Paul experienced grace that day. And is it any wonder then (laughs) that that's all he can talk about for the rest of his life? You know, in that moment when, when Paul realizes I'm still breathing, I'm still here on this earth for the first time in his life, he was probably experiencing words that he had memorized as a little kid. He was finally figuring out what it meant to say that that God's steadfast love reaches to the heavens. He was experiencing the grace of God in Jesus. And he didn't know it in that moment, but that grace was going to be the animating power of his life from that moment on. Paul was not a good guy. He was not out troubled in conscience trying to figure out a way to be redeemed from his evil deeds. But Jesus met him where he was with blinding grace. He is conquered by Jesus. (laughs) He is overthrown by the love and grace of Jesus. 
And Jesus forgives Paul, even before Paul has the presence of mind to ask for it or even imagine that it's possible. As he uh, puts it so vividly later in another letter that he wrote to a church in Rome, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. And I want you to know, church, that when Paul wrote that, that was not some esoteric, abstract piece of theology. That was just the story of his life. (laughs) The story that he now believed to be the true story of the world. And it is our story too, church. God's grace in Jesus offers people like us forgiveness. And it reconciles the whole world back to God. In Christ. God is making everything new again. And so, you know, from that day on, Paul, this is what Paul will do. He would go to places that he had never been to before, and he would figure out where the people gathered in those places, and then he would tell them about this Jewish man from a backwater town on on the easternmost edge of the empire, and he would say, look, he died, and he rose again, and he is the true king of the world. And he died so that we could be forgiven of all of the worst things we've ever done, all of the stuff that we hope no one ever finds out about. And he died so that this world could be restored to the peace in which God created it in the first place. And Paul would say that, and then he'd look those people in the eye, and he would say, you should believe in him. (laughs) You should worship him. And church, through him and through the other apostles, God set the world on fire. He set the world on fire with that good news inexplicably and astonishingly and surprisingly people believed and they changed and with them entire cultures changed. It is strange and beautiful thing that God does in this world and he's doing it today. He's doing it right now. And so this is what uh, Paul goes to Troas to do. Instead of seeing his friends at Corinth. And, you know, honestly, he says it's going pretty great in Troas. When he goes there, as Paul puts it, there was a door that was opened. We don't know exactly what that means. But the truth is, sometimes Paul would go to a place and uh, he would tell people about Jesus and he would barely escape alive. Sometimes he would go to a place and people would want to kill him just like uh, he wanted to kill the first Christians that he came across. And so things in Troas are going great, um, but something else is wrong. Paul says in verse 13, uh, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find uh, my brother Titus there. So this is what was happening. Titus was supposed to meet Paul in Troas. And he was supposed to tell him how things were going on in Corinth. Um, he, you know, after Paul sent that hard letter, he was eager to hear back. And so he knew if he went to Troas, the guy that he sent the letter with would be there and could tell him. But for reasons unknown to us, he hadn't made it. And Paul is incredibly distressed about it. He's in anguish over his friends. He's in anguish over this horrible breach that has happened between them. He's eager to hear news from them. He's eager to do whatever it is that he needs to do to be reconciled to them. 
even if it means uh, setting aside work that's going really well. And so that's what Paul does. He leaves. He leaves this place where the work is great. And he goes to Macedonia. And he goes because he hoped Titus would be there so that he could hear some news about these people that he loved. And I guess what I want to do is just underline that. Paul set aside work that was going really, really well in order to seek restoration, in order to seek uh, reconciliation. And I think that tells us something really significant about how important forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation are for people like us. Because the truth is the good news of Jesus isn't about me or you or just us being restored to God. The good news about Jesus is about us being restored to each other too, to the people around us. And so it's worth asking if there might be something you and I need to put aside, even if it's really, really good, in order to be restored and reconciled to the people that are in our lives. So Paul tells them about this plan, and then unexpectedly he just breaks off. In verse 14, he, he just breaks off, and he doesn't get back to his travel plans. He doesn't get back to Troas or Titus or Macedonia until chapter 7. This is one of the things that makes reading Paul so hard. He jumps around, and out of what feels like nowhere, this is what he says in verse 14. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The image at the heart of this is the Roman triumph procession. And everyone reading him in the first century would have known immediately what he was talking about and immediately what it meant. It would be like if I said, you know, it's like on the 4th of July when we light off fireworks you would know what I meant. The Roman triumph procession was basically a big parade. <laughs> it would be thrown in honor of a great military victory when the general returned to his city. We have records of the Roman Senate approving like 300 of these things, and they were big. Sometimes they would go on for days. The general would ride in in a chariot pulled by four horses. He'd be followed by soldiers who had fought in the campaign. And then after them, there'd be uh, a big display of the spoils of war. You know, pictures of the cities that were conquered and gold and silver and weapons that are taken away from their enemies. The priests would walk along the course to burning uh, incense. The idea was that they were giving thanks to the gods, to Jupiter, usually. And there was also this other idea that even if you didn't see the big victory march, even if you couldn't see it with your eyes, you were definitely going to smell it. And then there would always be, in this parade, enemy combatants in chains. Part of the parade would be some of the conquered soldiers. And they would be led in front of the people. They would be mocked and derided and spit upon. And the triumphal procession would usually end with them being led off to their public execution. So that's the image, well-known, well-worn in the empire. 
And so here's Paul in this letter trying to be reconciled to his friends, trying to fend off false accusations about him, trying to regain some lost footing as a trusted leader in their lives. So you might expect that when he uses this image, he would cast himself in it in the best possible light that he could. I mean, he's just talked about how things were going well in Troas, so it wouldn't be too much of a stress stretch for him to cast himself as the general, right? The guy who has succeeded in doing so much. He wants to prove himself to them in some way, so maybe he could say, I'm the general, I'm the strong guy, I'm the guy who's powerful, I'm the guy who has some victories under my belt. But of course, Paul Paul turns the whole thing completely inside out. He is not the conquering general. Jesus is. And that means that Paul is the prisoner. Paul is not the conquering hero. He is the conquered one. He is the one who has been overthrown. Overthrown by the love and grace of Jesus, conquered by the love of Jesus on a dusty road outside of Damascus and every day of his life after that. And he says, thanks, God. (laughs) Thank you that you always lead me around like that. And that incense, that smell of victory is the fragrance of the knowledge of him. We are, Paul says, the aroma of Christ to, to God. I mean, think about what Paul has already open-handedly admitted to in this letter, the kind of stuff he's suffered. He's got relationship troubles that he can hardly untangle. In fact, he makes it worse most of the time. He somehow almost died in Asia. While he was in Asia, he told them, I despaired of life. I thought I was going to die. I wanted to die. He suffered really intense personal pain at the attack of one of his friends at Corinth. He's, he's felt this deep spirit-level anxiety over their relationship. I mean, he's not got a lot of power. He's got a lot of weakness. He does not have a lot of glory. He has a lot of shame. He, he doesn't look like a conquering hero. He looks inept, like a loser. And he says, thank you, God, <laughs> because you have me right where you want me. It is in weakness And it is in suffering where power, glory, and grace are found. It is in weakness and it is in suffering and trouble where power and glory and grace are seen. And why is that? Well, because that's exactly what Jesus' life looked like. His whole life looked like that, right up until they led him as a chained prisoner to to his own execution beside a couple of thieves. But precisely at the deepest point of suffering and weakness and trouble, God worked grace and glory and victory. This is what God does, and this is how he does it all of the time. And when your life and mine carries even the faintest whiff of the life of Jesus. When we even smell in the tiniest way like him, we make that very, very good news known to everybody around us. 
And Paul says to some, you know, to some it's the smell of life and to some it is the smell of death. And I'm going to tell you, church, Paul can write that because he lived that. He hated Jesus and he hated what Jesus stood for and he hated what Jesus taught and he hated everything about it and he hated guys like Stephen who followed Jesus, who prayed for their enemies while they were killing him. He hated all of that stuff. He looked at Stephen and he said, Stephen, you're a conquered man. You've been overthrown. And it galled him. He hated it. It was threatening to him when he saw it. Because to believe it would be like death. It would be like being overthrown yourself and raised to a new life. And here is the truth, church. Every one of us in here has been overthrown by something. Every one of us in here has been conquered by something. Something leads all of us around in triumph. Something orders our lives. And it might be the classic stuff like power or money or pleasure. It might be something less obvious. I don't know. But I do know that real life, life like we were meant for, comes when we are overthrown by the one who was first overthrown for us. It is in his weakness and suffering where power and glory and grace are found. And so to follow Jesus in faith is to be made new. And it is to be made even in our suffering, to be made useful for the life of the world. Can we pray for us? Father, we ask that you would use uh, whatever it is in our lives that you need to to help us to believe this thing that runs counter to all of the messages that we hear, that we need to be people of influence and power and that we need to be people of glory and people of strength. Father, help us to see that it is uh, always in your story, that the grace that you have shown to us, the mercy that you have shown to us is made more clear in weakness and in suffering and trouble. Father, help us uh, to believe that that's true and to live as if that is true because it is incredibly good news for the life of the world. Do this so that we'll mature in our faith. Do this so that we will be a people through whom you can love this broken world. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen.